This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to another Liverpool.com podcast. I am Dan Morgan. I am your host for this week. I am joined by Liverpool.com staff writers Mark Wakefield and Joel Rabinovitz. Gents, I hope you're okay today. Um, we've got a bit to get through. It's been quite a week despite the lack of football. Um, there's been a lot of non-Liverpool but sort of sub-Liverpool related content that's come up around the Premier League. Um, and we're going to start there. But firstly, um, I'd just like to give you, the listener, the watcher, um, the results of last week's survey that we ran on Liverpool.com regarding Roberto Firmino. Um, we asked you what Liverpool do about the forwards form uh, and you voted throughout the week. So the results to come back uh, was 5% said... Um, Said nothing actually, it just says other entries, so I don't know what that means. Um, so 30, 35 people, 13% said play Sadio Mane or Mohamed Salah through the middle, um, thus taking Firmino out the side and bringing someone like Diogo Jota in. 37 people, 14%, um, basically said that Firmino needs to be more selfish in front of goal. Um, 45 people, 16%, take him out and replace him with Takumi Minamino. 72 votes, 26% of the votes persevere as he does so much for the team. And 29% of the votes, 80 people, change the shape to a 4-2-3-1 and play him as a number 10. So just quickly, lads, Mark, I'll start with you. What would you, where would you put your vote within that? And what do you think of the result? Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's probably a fair result. I mean, personally, I'd like, I'm personally a fan of... Um, <coughs> Minamino, I'd like to always like to see Minamino given a go. Um, I don't think we've seen as much of him as we would like. Um, he's certainly impressed in pre-season um, and is impressed in the moments that we've seen him so far in the early moments of the season. But we haven't seen him like from a start yet. Um, when he has played, he's probably played either as a number ten or on the through or on the right, which is on the right is probably not his best position, but. Yeah, I'd like to see Minamino go through the middle. Um, in terms of Firmino, you know, it seems unthinkable to drop him because he just seems to have been an ever-present part of this Liverpool team for so long and so key to, to the success that they've had. But, you know, the drop-off in form that he has shown since the start of the season, I think you know, you can't deny it anymore. Um, I think it was just you know, typified by what happened at Villa that, for one reason or another, like it's just not going his way at the moment, and you know Klopp likes to go with Firmino, and not not just him, but just likes to go with the faith. He likes to have his trust in players show backs them, which is served them so well. But I think it would serve a message to the rest of the squad if he was to take Firmino out. That you know Firmino is basically his main guy, but if he if he's not guaranteed a spot, then it might send a message to everyone else saying, "Look, we've got to keep at it." Otherwise, we could end up like that. And, you know, as as it was, I think it was with um, when last season when Joel Matip got injured and Joe Gomez came in, you know, Matip very rarely got it back inside then after that. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure for players like, uh, well, pretty much everyone. So, yeah, I think it might be the time to take Firmino out. It's a big gamble considering it's the derby and given the form that Everton is showing. But, yeah, I think this might be the time to give Minamino a go. I'm interested in the um, the angle around sort of asking him to be more selfish, Joel. I think you sort of you 
you're asking for a lot of sacrifice there in terms of how much he does for the team. And I know Ali wrote something yesterday about his pressing numbers being down. But, you know, he is constantly looking to be that provider, just to be that person who does a lot of stuff that can't even be quantified by stats. You know, there's times where he'll make a run sort of five yards to the right just to create half a yard of space for someone else. And, and you you can't quantify that in many ways. And, yeah, I, I I don't think I don't think it's as easy as saying just ask him to sort of take more shots on or not look for teammates. I don't think that's ever going to work with a player like him. No, I don't think selfish is the word I would use in terms of what he needs to be. I think it's just more more ruthless, really. Uh, if you look mm-hmm. at the numbers last season, he was in the positions to score almost twice as many goals as he did if he had just been finishing in line of his expected goals. Um, so I don't think selfishness is the issue. I think he just needs to be more clinical when he gets in those positions. Um, I, I am interested by the four-two-three-one thing. We've we've spoken and written a lot about this before, and it hasn't really kind of materialised so far this season. But uh, I do like the idea of Firmino playing as a ten there. He did it quite well uh, at parts in in twenty eighteen nineteen in the first few months. I also quite like Salah playing through the middle. Or there's other options there. You could play Firmino and Firmino and uh, Minamino at the same time in that formation. Um, Mane could even go through the middle. Jot has done it. Um, uh, Wolves obviously in a different system before. Uh, it's whether you'd want to change the system just to kind of try and get one player back into form. But I do think there are merits to it uh, with the midfield as well. I always think Fabinho looks better with someone next to him. Um, so we'll see. I don't think it's as, as simple as well as saying that we need to drop Firmino as such because now that there's mm-hmm. mid-Champions League games all the way through to the next international break, really. Uh, you're going to see more rotation now anyway, so I don't really think Firmino is going to be starting every game as it is. It'll be interesting to see what he does because um, you've obviously got Everton, Ajax pretty close together coming up. Um, so I'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't be too surprised if we see Firmino not starting one of those two. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Project Big Picture then. Uh, breaks on Sunday via the Telegraph. Um there's a lot to dig out from it. I suppose the main take is that it does have a Liverpool imprint on it through John Henry and Fenway Sports Group. And I think it's without doubt the fact um, that it's John Henry's sort of big vision, not only for Liverpool, but for the Premier League. Um, there's lots of different angles on this. There's lots of ways in which it can be interpreted and has been interpreted. I'll just start with you, Joel. I mean, what's, what's your initial thoughts on it? When I first read the story, firstly, I was just surprised, really. It kind of took me took me aback a bit because FSG never really have been regarded as or seen themselves as football people, really. They've come into the sport. Um, and, uh, yeah, to see them kind of take such decisive action and devise this really detailed plan, uh, which isn't just about, it does obviously from a Liverpool kind of perspective in the first place, but it's going to have a profound, if it were to, to take place, on the whole of English football to see them sort of driving that um, was the sort of the first thing I noticed was, was quite surprising. And the fact that they're doing it in tandem uh, with Man United as well. Um, That's it right with you. So not, not the, the United Liverpool rivalry, but just sort of, they are, the Glazers are sort of on a bit of a, you know, a model end of the spectrum compared to what they've done with United, the way in which they've sort of, gutted money out the club and stuff like that compared to to FSG you have been quite stable as owners it, it's not something that a lot of people could be entirely comp, com, 
comfortable with. I know there's a couple of Liverpool fans who have voiced that kind of concern that, you know, you're sort of doing this with a almost an owner of the committee's crowd that's not fit and proper in many ways. Yeah, I mean, in general, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it because it's obviously their 10-year anniversary this week. Um, but they've been fairly sort of removed or distant and that's not necessarily always a negative but they've been quite good I think at sort of putting responsibility and power in the hands of people who do know what they're doing and know the sport so to see them and John Harry specifically at the forefront of this um, is quite surprising you're not I think yeah you'd be right to have some sort of reservations uh, about whether they're the right people to do it I think without getting bogged down there's, there's so much detail Ollie's written about a really good piece very strongly opinionated on the site which you should all go and read but I think the thing that sticks out to me is that the conversation needed to happen at some point um, quite urgently. If you hear what, what kind of lower league clubs are saying and championship clubs, that they do need financial support. And that's not to say that this exact kind of proposal and all the details are right. I think that there are imperfections with it and there are kind of negotiations that need to be had. But I think the fact that it's actually started a dialogue and that nobody else is coming forward with a plan at the moment, um, I think that's a useful thing. Um, there are obviously aspects of it that we have to kind of take our Liverpool glasses off um, and see that like if you have a clubs lower down in the Premier League or clubs that are trying to come up to the Premier League it is reinforcing a sort of glass ceiling which is already there um, so I, I can understand why people would be quite uncomfortable with certain aspects of it but I do think it's a, a discussion which needed to be started at some point pretty soon Mark what's your take on it? Yeah, I'm with Joel. I mean, when when the story broke, I mean, I didn't. I was obviously very surprised, but it's just it just seemed like a weird timing of it. I mean, like like Joel said, no other clubs certainly have like publicly come out with major discussions or coming up with a plan of how to tackle the problems that are surfacing with the um like the financial impact of like in like the lower league and championship and league one two. Um, something certainly needs to be done. So I think there's something um, to be said. For you know Liverpool and Man United taking like you know grasping it and make, trying to sort something out with that, but you can't deny that it is a very quite a selfish plan, if you like. I mean, you can't deny that. I mean, try it. Just seems like when the Premier League formed, I think in 1992, you know Liverpool were like tailing off a little bit. United were like trying to um you know try, you know with like becoming the dominant force in England, and Liverpool sort of missed out on. You know, obviously all the revenue stuff and obviously trying to they've been basically playing catch up ever since. And I think there's something in um now that Liverpool are at the very top of the game, they want to make the most of it and trying to, you know, become that the spearhead, the figurehead of the Premier League, which you know Manchester United have been for so long and now Liverpool are trying to get get that back. Um yeah, I'm, there's certainly some positive aspects to it, but I think like it just screams of selfishness that you know taking your Liverpool glasses off you just can't deny and it's um it doesn't read well but you can see why they're doing it but it just yeah it just doesn't sit right in my opinion it's it's interesting to me that you've had the likes of Derby County and and Forest Green Rovers people in power there coming out and um supporting the, the proposal, Rick Parry's clearly on board. He says it's the best reform reform proposal for football in the last 25 years, I think he put. Um, so that in that sense, you know, Ollie, Ollie in his piece called it dangling the red meat, Joel. Um, would, we be, would we be sort of, 
would we be wrong to think that is is purely cynical from from Fenway Sports Group to to put this forward as a as a bit of bait for football clubs and then sort of renege on that maybe, but or give them that and then sort of run away into the sunset. You, do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, I, I do know what you mean. I think it, it's unsurprising that a lot of the lower league clubs are supposedly in in favour of it because they do urgently need the money. And I think what what's happened is because the system has become so sort of entrenched now. There's so many clubs in the football league whose basic aspirations, realistically, of it, they're never actually going to be able to challenge for anything other than reaching the Premier League is probably the height of what they can hope to achieve. And I think there's a wider discussion to be had around that. I'm not quite sure that you can really address that inequality without something really drastic like what they have in American sports where you have salary caps and draft selections and stuff like that, Mm. Um, which kind of creates that that fluid system where teams can move up and down. I think what we have now, the way it is with those clubs, so sort of established at the top and yeah, it's it's so difficult to see how, how that really changes without something urgent. So I can see why this in the kind of immediate term is like a necessary compromise for a lot of these teams. I think the ones that you would probably have more sympathy for and it would be difficult to accept are the teams sort of in the middle, lower half of the Premier League who would ideally like to make that next step. Um, I'm thinking of the likes of sort of Leicester, Wolves, teams that have sort of been in, in and around the periphery of a top six, top four recent seasons. But that's already hard enough. Obviously, the kind of a Leicester title win was one freakish anomaly which just was a confluence of events that probably won't ever happen again um and i think this move probably just reinforces that kind of yeah the status quo as it is um so yeah i don't think the entire thing needs to kind of be dismissed in its entirety um as is but uh yeah i I completely understand why a lot of people take issue with the kind of the core principle behind it for sure I think I think one thing we can sort of nail down, Mark, from this is that it is a huge indictment on a governing body such as the FA that two clubs have had to sort of step forward with their own proposal, which isn't done on a whim. This has been a, a body of work over you could you could do at least two or three years. Um, I think it's sort of the 18th draft or something like that that got leaked. So that just shows you that within that time, they feel football is broken enough for them to not only try and fix it themselves, but have so little faith in the governing bodies of this country that they can't and won't step in and do it themselves. Now, there's talk of of the FA making those proposals on the back of this. But again, it's it's another it's another round of, of events which sort of eventually culminates begging the question is, what is the point in the Football Association? Because there isn't one, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean... It's struggling to disagree. I'm struggling to disagree with anything you said there. I mean, yeah, it's just the powers that the clubs are having nowadays. I mean, like you see, Liverpool, Man United are the two powerhouses of the Premier League in terms of, or in English football, with just you know the obviously the history they have. But in terms of the, it just shows the the might that they have in the game at the top level. In, like with like what Joel was saying, FSG they're coming to the the sport not really having or any background in it. Same with the Glazers, obviously. Um, they've been there a lot longer. But, you know, the fact that two organisations whose background isn't based purely on football can just come up with a plan that will revolutionise the game. And then you've got the FA there who, as of yet, haven't come up with, you know, some sort of 
like strong plan like that this one that we've seen yeah it really is an indictment of just yeah what the fa are it's them getting involved in things that you know you wouldn't you wouldn't ordinarily expect you know if someone said to you last week that manchester united and liverpool would put forward a proposal to fix football in inverted commas you wouldn't expect things in there to be that are there like the women's team for example the women's game um stretching down the football league's parachute payments you know this isn't just this isn't you know, we can talk about corporate greed and the fact that, that it might be a power grab by both of them probably is in many ways and whether we trust that process, which a lot of us don't and would be right not to. But at the end of the day, they are saying this game is fundamentally broken. You know, parachute payments should not be being dictated to and sort of proposed by Manchester United and Liverpool of all people, but they can see that these flaws go way beyond the top six of English football and that it does need fixing. And I think if one thing comes from this that could be good, it is that it should actually be addressed now that these issues need fixing from the women's game to the lower leagues and then stretching right the way to the top of the Premier League in Europe. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, um, certainly like grassroots level, um, there's obviously been a lot of issues with lack of funding and stuff. And um, yeah, even all the way up through the national leagues and you could all argue going up to lead two as well, just the sheer gulf. Like, obviously, like money has become the main part of the game. That's just the way it is. Football's becoming more of a business rather than a sport. Certainly, the higher up you go, um, yeah. I mean, you can see why, like FSG and the Glazers with United have done it. They're trying to take advantage of a situation, but they obviously, you know, they want to be seat or they want to help the situation out with what is going on just the lack of funding that is like like all the money is at the Premier League level sadly that's just the way it is with the obviously the parachute payments which as we've said like shouldn't be the thing that should be happening but yeah I mean there's just something wrong in with the way that the game is structured at the moment financially anyway and yeah if like if, if something good comes of it and that the these issues like the women's game and the grassroots and lower leagues on the financial level get sorted, then yeah, that is one positive I think you can take from it. All right, let's move on. There's a couple of anniversaries that we're covering on Liverpool.com. This week is 10 years of Fenway Sports Group. We've already brought you a piece um, on that yesterday from Mark, who, or Monday, sorry, from Mark, who, who delved into the, the world of what-ifs. You know, if, if Liverpool had not of won that battle on the high court in London in 2010. You know, could they have been in League Two? Could Liverpool have been owned by, you know, Dubai and Venture Capitals, I think they were called back in the day. Yeah, DIC. Um, all of those what-ifs, that's available to, to look at now on Liverpool.com. We've got loads more coming through the week. But yeah, I think from from writing on it, Joel, um, there's there's a lot of things that sort of take you back when we, when we do these project pieces and, and we sort of get that nostalgia. I mean, just in general... Looking back a decade, a long time, how do you sum up Fenway Sports Group's ownership of Liverpool? Uh, pretty good in two words. Um, I think they've obviously been far from perfect in a lot of things, um, especially sort of decisions off the pitch, um, which is all we've obviously written lots about and will continue to do so on things like ticket prices and, and stuff like that. Uh, the furlough scheme, obviously, earlier this year. Um but in general, in terms of what you would want from an ownership, it's, it's actually incredible when you look back over the last decades in a slightly different reality where not a lot would have had to have changed. Liverpool could have been sat here 
having won every single trophy they could have won. They could have won the Europa League uh, in Klopp's first sort of mini season. They've won the League Cup already. Um, FA Cup, they've, they've come pretty close to, not quite got over the line. I mean, obviously, they've done the big ones, Champions League, Premier League, Club World Cup, Super Cup. So in 10 years from where they took over, uh, when you had kind of Roy Hodgson talking about the realistic prospect of a relegation battle and... Um, yeah, they, they've, I think they've pretty much delivered. Um, I think what's interesting and what we'll, we'll come on to do plenty on is where they go next from here because pretty much half of their tenure now um, has been under Klopp and he's become such a sort of figurehead of the whole project. He completely chimes with their values and the model that they want to run. Klopp's currently contracted until 2024. You don't know what the intentions of FSG are sort of longer term, um, but it will be fascinating to see what, what FSG look like beyond Klopp at Liverpool, if indeed they are still the owners at that point. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I think one thing we can take, looking back, Mark, I know it seems very quickly now that it's it's time gone and passed, but it was a long-term project that they set out with Liverpool and, and it wasn't ever going to be easy. And they had to learn from their own mistakes because, like you said before, they're not, they're not football people, they're not from this country. Um, but they have been committed to the concept of, of getting Liverpool to where they are. You know, we can argue whether or not they thought it would be this successful under Jurgen Klopp. But they've done things a different way, which I think can be put to their credit. You know, they, they've sort of looked at ways which don't conventionally conform to, to winning titles in this, this country, i.e. sort of throwing money at the, at the problem until it's solved. They've tried to do it different ways. They've, they've looked at managers like Brendan Rodgers. They've had people in like Damian Camoli. It's been a learning process that we've all been on with them, I think it's fair to say. You know, we've all sort of had to learn from them and from their mistakes as, as supporters and people who care and invested in this football club. Yeah, I mean, no. when they came in 10 years ago, I mean, it, things probably hadn't been that bad certainly in my lifetime probably for a long long time the situation at the club balance I was in at the time so in that respect I think the only way was up for them um, you know they, they didn't waste no time in um, getting rid of Hodgson and getting a club legend like Dalglish on side uh, in the side you know that instantly got supporters you know certainly in a positive mood and got them bought them time as well um, yeah um, I personally I didn't envisage them winning certainly all the trophies that they've won in such a relatively short space of time. You could argue five years is still, you know, quite a long time in the grand scheme of things with Klopp. But, you know, the trophies that have been delivered, you know, definitely since Klopp's tenure, obviously they won the League Cup before um, with Dalglish. But, yeah, just the way that they've gone about running the club, I think, it's on the pitch anyway. I mean, we've touched on the um, some of the bad things, that they've, uh, bad decisions they've made off it. But, you know, they just seem to have got the key decisions right, you know, um, even with the way they got Klopp, um, I think they were just, you know, with Rodgers, it just felt like they, there was a plan even after the end of the 14-15 um, season that they wanted to get someone in, even though they kept stuck with Rodgers and that they made the groundwork and got Klopp in. And I think that was a very, they've got to be praised for doing that. Um, and then, yeah, they just basically, the way they ran the business in terms of getting uh, running the transfers, not like you say, not um, just spending money for money's sake, the way that clubs have won the title in the past. I think 
they've got to be praised for doing that. And yeah, um, it's interesting to see what the future holds, especially post plot, whether that's in 2024 after, who knows? But yeah, I mean, they've certainly got a structure in place that can build a dynasty of success if they keep the work going right. If I have one frustration, Joel, it's that to me, they haven't always learned from mistakes. And I think, you know, it's it's easy to say that the, the mistakes they've made are very different, but I don't think they've learned from Liverpool as a culture um, in terms of supporter bases, the emotion around the club. They've never learned from me really not to do things. And it's it feels like they've never really had someone in the room with them to sort of say, look, just don't do that. It, it's not going to work. It's going to be received really badly. I think you can go back to the sort of the walkout against Sunderland in 2016. That should have served as as a real warning to them that you know this isn't this isn't a supporter base that you take liberties with. But since then, you know, we've had the copywriting of of the word Liverpool and you know something that's already established as a city, which was just absolutely crazy um, and then there's the obvious furlough issue so just on a moral point of view for me those mistakes you know I'm frustrated they haven't sort of learned from, from them and eradicated them even even all these years after the first one now that it's passed I can see that yeah and I think it, it feeds into the sort of slight concern that a lot of people have that they're basically just businessmen who are sat on the other side of the Atlantic in an office somewhere in Boston and if they did actually speak to people, I mean, from what you hear, Klopp's got a very close relationship with Mike Gordon, especially he talks sort of every week, um, if not every day with him about kind of how the club's going. So it's not like if they really wanted to talk to people who work in the club and are kind of present within the city that they could they could quite easily gauge the mood on certain issues before these decisions arise. I think you're right to reference the walkout. That should have kind of served as a, a bit of a crossroads moment. They realised that this sort of thing isn't going to, isn't going to sit well with people who support the club, um, which I think is why the trademark thing, and then more recently, given the sort of circumstances at the time, the, the furlough thing was was such an own goal, an avoidable own goal, which you know you, you could see coming. And I know they they got some credit from some people for sort of reversing it very quickly and kind of responding to their mistakes, but you, I don't almost feel like they should get too much praise for that because it's 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 a good thing in a sense, I suppose, that they did listen and and act accordingly, but you'd rather they just didn't put themselves in that position in the first place. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, few ownerships, if any, are perfect. Um, I think if, if you take the whole kind of body of work into account, we've not really mentioned as well the, the stuff they've done off the pitch um, in terms of expanding Anfield, building a new training facility, things like that have to kind of go down um, on their record as well as real positives beyond what they've delivered on the pitch. I think now, sort of without projecting the future too much, the fact that Liverpool are a stable club and considering, like you said, what, what FSG came into after the mess of Hicks and Gillette High Court and the club almost being liquidised, you know, in, in the current climate with the future very much unknown economically, Liverpool being stable as, as an organisation, as a business and all people like that, but ultimately it is. There's a lot of money at play. There's there's a lot of balance in the books that needs to be doing on such a high level with, with a, an organisation like Liverpool Football Club. You know, this this current predicament within worldwide, I'm I'm sort of personally of the opinion that FSG will be mindful of 
balancing Liverpool's books and making sure that they are sort of financially viable going forward. And, you know, there was a lot of talk around transfers and the fact that they were overly cautious when Liverpool um, looked like they weren't signing Thiago Alcantara. They got him and Diogo Jota. So I think the point is is probably that this this type of thing, you know, transfers, money spent, etc., that won't be done on a whim. That will be a cautious, measured approach where you look around at other clubs and you're sort of wondering what the contingency is if if the sort of financial meltdown that's predicted comes comes to pass as a result of, of the current pandemic. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of the transfer side of things, um, I mean, pretty much all of Klopp's reign, I think Liverpool have done transfers in a way that I think every club wished they could do and they've done it in such a, you know, smart, shrewd way, like in going on to the, the Jota and Thiago deals. I mean, looking at both of those, they pretty much typify everything that is good about Liverpool's transfer policy in their, um, you know, in terms of Thiago, the deal, like I say, the, the, Liverpool got to find, make sure the books, uh, the books are balanced and the deal that they've done with that is, what is it, five million a year for four years, you know, they've actually and slightly have five million though, you know, that's not that, I know it sounds a lot of money, but in terms of a club of Liverpool size, you know, it's quite a shrewd bit of business. Um, Jota, four and a half million up front and then paying the rest as and when, whenever it is like next year. So, yeah, in terms of like the transfer side of things and making sure the, the, books, uh, the books are balanced, you know, they've definitely got the right people in, like, in the, um, they're sort of doing the work right. I just think, yeah, they're certainly doing it the right way. Um, and hopefully the way they're doing it puts the club in such a good stead going forward, certainly for the next year, a few years with Klopp, after Klopp. Hopefully, who knows how long that will be, but they're certainly putting themselves in the right place. Another anniversary last week was Jürgen Klopp's five years at Liverpool. Uh, we covered that extensively um, on Liverpool.com. If you read some of the content, I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed giving you alternative looks like Jürgen Klopp's uh, love affair with Turf Moor, which I wrote, which I really enjoyed. Uh, Mark wrote something on what could have been with Carlo Ancelotti, which was also excellent. And Joel, just to touch on your 16-17 running piece, which I think we can all agree sort of top the bill. Um, it was it was a great piece, and and I think what it does is it reminds you of the journey that you you've been on with Klopp. You know, we talk about ten years of FSG there, five years of Klopp feels like almost treble that time. It, there, there has been so many sort of developments and and you know improvements, not only as as football teams go, but as supporters and, and mindsets and. You know, he really has sort of taken this club on an adventure. And when you sort of look back to those early days and that running in particular, you, you get to see where the pieces of the jigsaw fitted at exactly the right time to get us to where we are now. Yeah, it was a really enjoyable one to write, actually, because I remember those matches so so vividly, even though it's it's, it's quite a while ago now, but it doesn't feel like it. Um, and you, you kind of forget about that season, 16-17. Klopp almost got a kind of a, a free hit, really, when he arrived because he came in October with a, a squad which wasn't his and he had to sort of do what he could and got to two cup finals, lost them both. But you could see that the, the kind of the signs were there. 16-17 was where the work started. And yeah, you, you kind of forget that you get to uh, New Year's Eve and they're just beating Man City at Anfield. And at that point, they're very much in a title challenge with Chelsea. Uh who were doing well under Conte, but it didn't look like they were kind of going to pull away necessarily. Liverpool looked looked excellent in the first half of the campaign. And then 
I remember so well watching that um, the two all against Sunderland just after I think it was the first fixture of a new year. Um, and Liverpool went ahead twice, two penalties for Sunderland, and it just just unravelled from there. The January and the February um, were awful. Liverpool barely won a match. I remember there was a two 0 defeat to Hull, which I touched on in a piece um, away from home. Nias scored twice, and uh, at that point it looked really really quite bleak. Um, you've gone from kind of a potential title challenge to wondering whether Liverpool would actually hold on to finish top four and there's all kinds of other bits and pieces that Klopp had to deal with there um, he loses Lalana, he loses Henderson and then he loses Mane for the season and he's really got to sort of patch it all together really for that run in and there's just so many uh, really tight gritty nasty games there um, Stoke away where Liverpool go in 1-0 down start with Ben Woodburn up front bring him off and then Coutinho and Firmino come on and score and they win there's a West Brom away where Lucas has a brilliant headed assist for Firmino and they just hold on. Um, obviously, the, the Watford's Emre Chan goal um, and then that leads you into the last two games against West Ham away, which was, was brilliant. And then Middlesbrough, which had its own sort of peril in the first half and they came through it. But yeah, that run really just sort of set up everything that was to come. And then you get obviously the arrival of Salah quite soon after that, Robertson, Oxo chamberlain um, And then there's the Hoffenheim leg, which really sort of opens up Liverpool's return to the elite in Europe. So, yeah, of all the kind of periods, um, people will look back on Klopp's reign at the trophies and uh, the Barcelonas and the Dortmund games and everything like that. But that sort of that that last stretch of sixteen seventeen was was a really formative time. I don't know about you, Mark, but I I think we really need Jurgen Klopp, the person, right now. Um, as much as we do the football manager, we know he's an exceptional man manager. We know he'll be able to, to motivate players who maybe won't be able to get off for playing games of football in empty stadiums. I think that's fair to say that that could well be an issue in the modern game currently. Um, but just given what's happened this week and given the sort of need for someone as pragmatic and as, as sensible as, as Jürgen Klopp, you know, I'm just, I'm just really grateful now more than ever. I suppose that he's, he's Liverpool manager. Yeah, definitely. Um, we could, we could talk forever and a day about how much that Klopp has done to this club in terms of the result, like the trophies, the results, like just getting everything together. But he, Klopp always has the ability of just saying the right thing in the right moment. Like he can read the room better than most people could. Yeah. Um, just when the times have been tough, whatever the situation may be, on or off the pitch, you know, he's always managed to say the right thing, um, you know, and like you say, getting the players up for matches that aren't with no crowd there. Um, talk as well about whether players either thrive off not having fans there or whether they need extra motivation. Klopp will be able to bring them down to earth and get them ready for whatever, whatever mood they're in. Yeah, it's just... I say we can eulogise about him forever and a day for whatever re- for whatever reason we want to choose really, but yeah, just for Jurgen Klopp the person, you know, he's just perfect for for Liverpool in terms of the club, the city, the people. He's like like I think Kane Dalglish said he is an adopted scouser. You know, he's not he's not a German from Black Forest. He is a, a scouser pretty much, and you know, I I couldn't want wish or want for any manager to be manager a uh, person to be manager of this club than him. Not just for his management skills, his tactics, whatever one to choose, but just for the person, you know, there's not really a more a better choice than him. How do you think he's remembered now, Joel? I, it seems to me like I, I can't personally see him going managing anybody else after Liverpool. And if that's the case, then it feels like 
his identity has changed a lot from the manager who came from Dortmund and particularly the perception of the manager who came from Dortmund. You know, he had this perception as not only for the Gagan pressing and stuff like that, but as being quite unhinged and, you know, being sort of full throttle rock and roll. You know, you expect the touchline bands, a lot of people were saying, I remember at the time. And yeah, it's almost as if his journey to Liverpool has become a culmination. I think I think where I'm getting is that I think once, you know, the curtain does come down and clop the manager, it will be sort of the Liverpool identity, the Liverpool version of himself, which is slightly sort of small C conservative and toned down from what we were sort of sold as Jurgen Klopp from Dortmund. Um, I think that will be sort of the lasting legacy of him, especially as someone who is, is also sort of successful as a football manager too. Yeah, I thought, I mean, the conversation around Klopp as a, like we've just touched on as a human being, his charisma, how he makes people feel, how he speaks is all valid and an absolutely essential part of, of the manager he is. But I, I do sometimes feel like it's almost, it almost obscures the fact that he's an incredibly sophisticated and skilled manager for in terms of tactical reasons and, and what he does um, with the team. It's an aspect which I've always found is just being kind of uh, untouched a little or not given enough kind of attention or praise in the whole conversation around Klopp. He, like you said, he came with a very kind of distinct reputation um, from Dortmund as being the guy who runs up and down the touchline, shouts a lot, celebrates with his players, gets very animated. But we knew back then relatively little other than just kind of catchphrases like pressing and heavy metal football about what he'd actually bring and the evolution of Liverpool over his five years has been fascinating. We've gone from a heavy pressing team with kind of rapid counter attacks to one that's become a lot more balanced, multifaceted. You look at the amount of systems that we've played, the way he's tweaked positions of different players, buying a player like Genie Wijnaldum, who was a, a goal scoring number 10 and converting him into one of the best kind of controlling deep lying midfielders in Europe. What he's done with Firmino. What he's done with basically every single player who's now part of this team, who when they came here, the levels that they've gone on to reach because of his coaching on the training ground, the stuff that we don't get to see, uh, we get to kind of hear and, and read little pieces about. But I think that's that's a really underestimated aspect. He's obviously had backing from FSG to make those big signings, but what he's actually done in terms of bringing players through, changing their style, um, de- developing an identity which has remained consistent but has evolved um, in terms of what Liverpool needed to achieve. Um, I'd like to think that that's kind of remembered just as much as, as the man of Klopp himself. Absolutely. Um, we'll move on. The Merseyside derby, football, back uh, this weekend. Mark, you're writing something currently on the game and, and whether we can finally expect to see goals in this one. Um, as you rightly pointed out this morning, the last four have garnered one goal and that was Sadio Mane's in the uh, 94th minute winner. In case any Evertonians watching have forgot about that one, I'm sure they won't be. Um, but it is an interesting start that comes from this fixture. I mean, you're writing the piece on it. I mean, why, why do you think it is? Why do you think there has been such a, a lack of goals in this one? And then you've got the likes of the 5 2 at Anfield last season. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I mentioned at the start earlier, it's just it's a fascinating thing how you know, we've seen so few goals that go. So, yeah. Lanfield, I mean, let's say it's got seven in one game. How, what was it, four, what, four, one, four, two at half time in that game? No, absolutely cra- uh, crazy game. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what's happened at Goodison, I've, I've looking into it, I mean, each of the games that we've just seen, I've had whole different circumstances around them. You know, 
last season was the first game after the restart. Both teams not at it, not as fluid, very rusty. You can understand that being a bit goalless. The season before, Liverpool were in a title challenge, title running, Everton meandering around that mid-table. Um, and they wanted to spoil the party. Now, all the built I remember all the built that game was just Everton wanted to hold Liverpool's title challenge, and to some extent they did. Um, and then the season before, um, in 1718, um, Salah was injured for the game because I think he picked up an off in the Man City game um, in the Champions League. So Salah was out. No, at that time, no. Basically, all most of the goal threat went through Salah. You know, 44 goals in one season. Absolutely um, phenomenal uh, return. But yeah, when you look at it that way, you know, the fact that there are no fans at Goodison as well this time around, um, I think that has. Um, hindered Everton somewhat because I think I think we touched on it earlier though. Everton seemed to be afraid to lose especially at home um, whether they're at Anfield you know, there's, obviously it's a different atmosphere different pressure um, but this time around there seems to be a different feel around it obviously there's no fans again but you know Everton are arguably you know, in the de- I mean, they definitely are in a better form um, top of the table they've won all their games and they didn't lose 7-2 like Liverpool did before um, so and there just seems a different feel around both clubs at the moment. You know, Liverpool are going to be able to have that because of you know the weight's off their shoulders with winning the title. Whether they'll have that hunger again to go again, we'll have to wait and see. But with Everton, they just seem rejuvenated with Ancelotti. Um, you know, I've touched on it before as well. You know, we could very well have had him as manager instead of Klopp at one time. And you know, given that we just had Rodgers at the time, the choice of having Ancelotti or Klopp at the time was. You know, wasn't a bad one to have whichever one we'd have gone for, but yeah, it's certainly going to be a different Merseyside derby uh, to what we've seen in the past. Obviously, as again, no fans, all games are different, but yeah, what whether what sort of game we see this time around? I mean, I'm not going to put my neck on the line and say there's going to be goals because no matter what, it will be a nil, another nil nil, uh, boring nil nil again. But yeah, it's all got all the ingredients to be certainly more of a goal fest this time around than before. Joel, Thiago and Sadio Mane back for Liverpool. Um, that looks all but confirmed. We know Adrian will be in goal. Um, are there any other questions that you would sort of answer here for the team? Midfielders on. I think... this. Sorry, mate. Sorry, I've just muted myself by accident. No Mike. worries. Um, I think what the one kind of unknown quantity at the moment as well is the Brazil players have come back. They've had a really long trip. I think they played this morning as we were recording it. Um, but obviously, there's all kinds of things to take into account, like testing and stuff, whether they get their results in time, um, which you would hope. But sort of in terms of physical conditioning, you wonder whether all of them, obviously, Alisson's out anyway. Um, but as if maybe a decision to be made around Fabinho uh, and Firmino. Um, Matip's an interesting one. Um, I've seen he's back in training this week. And, and in the form of, of Gomez recently, uh, who's obviously been playing for England as well. You wonder whether Matip just having a clean run of training towards this game maybe gets put back in. Uh, obviously, remember, we've got Ajax next week in midweek, so there's another chance of rotation there. Um, other than that, I don't see too many surprises. I would quite like to see Henderson and Thiago on the pitch together, um, something which we haven't, haven't seen any of so far because obviously Thiago came on for Henderson when he got injured at Stamford Bridge. Um, which is incredible, really, when you think about it. The whole Thiago thing, I've been thinking about this last few days. You've seen him posting pictures of himself walking around Liverpool and 
it's all been a bit like a hazy dream really it feels so long ago that we announced him and there's all the excitement and the fact that we've actually we only got that kind of 45 minute glimmer of him at Stamford Bridge and then other than that nothing so I'd like to see Thiago and Henderson together with either probably one and more Fabinho um the other thing as well, Cater, there's been a bit of talk around him. I think he tested positive and then he tested negative. So I think he should hopefully be okay for this one. Um, but yeah, I'm just in general, I'm fascinated to see how Everton approaches. I do agree uh, with Mark. I think the lack of fans, despite it being at home, might actually benefit them more because they just feel like they've got less pressure behind them. Uh, it's the first derby in, as far as I can remember, really, where Everton have come into it in better shape than Liverpool. Um I wouldn't go as far as to say, I mean, it'd be ridiculous to say they're favourites going into it, but they've definitely got the confidence and the optimism, which hasn't been there previously. So, yeah, if Anshotti wants to set up with Rodriguez and Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin sort of in a 10-man low block, I'd be surprised. Um, but then again, people expecting goals. Uh, I could quite easily see it being another really cagey nil-nil because these games often are straight off the back of an international break. Would you do anything at centre-back, Mark? Yeah, I mean, like Joel touched on it, it is an interesting one. I mean, you know, Gomez obviously had a bad game against Villa, but I think pretty much everyone did in that day. Um, and then just less than a week before that, we were praising him for putting in arguably a man on the match to play against Arsenal. You know, how good he was that day. Um, you know, that's the problem with football these days. People have very short memories. You're only based on what your last game rather than once before. Um, I think it will be a gamble. To put Matip in straight away, I think a very big gamble, especially with the pace that Everton possess with that like Richarlison, um, Calvert Lewin. You know, they've got some really good pace up front. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, there's also an argument for Fabinho back there. You know, we saw him how good he was against Chelsea, and then you could have like Thiago and Henderson in midfield. You know, there's all kinds of options. Um, you know, I'll be I'll be very surprised if he starts Matip, but again, it is an option that could be used, but me personally, I'll stick with Gomez if it was me personally. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes Matic purely on the basis that Calvert-Lewin, I think, is one of the best in the air in the league at the moment. He's he's unbelievable threat from high balls, corners, set pieces, crosses, everything, um, which is probably the one area you'd say Gomez is probably significantly weaker than Matic in, in terms of just winning headers in the box, basically. So... I understand what Mark's saying in terms of a lack of sharpness and rhythm with Matip, but purely from that perspective, the confidence that Calvert-Lewin's in, I think it wouldn't be the worst decision in the world. No, absolutely. Um, we'll have all tons of content building up to the game, um, pre, post, and anything in between on Liverpool.com. Um, look out for this week's survey, which will come in the form of a written piece. We are basically going to do something on 10 years of FSG, which we start off with asking you the question, should Liverpool have sold Fernando Torres in January 2010? At the bottom of that piece, there will be a survey with a list of options. You pick the outcome, you therefore pick the next piece, and you therefore pick the reality that 10 pieces down the line you end up with. Um, so we're looking forward to doing that. It should be fun. So, yeah, look out for that. Um, keep with us for, for, like I say, all your Everton content and the tons of football that's coming back in terms of Champions League and fixtures on every front for Liverpool. But that's been Liverpool.com's podcast this week. Thanks to Joel. Thanks to Mark. I've been Dan Morgan. I'll see you all soon. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.